Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's so good to be with all of you this morning as we continue our journey through the incredible story of God as he unfolds it in the scriptures. So uh, this weekend is a unique weekend uh, in the annual calendar of the church. Uh, it is the beginning of the Holy Week. Uh, the Holy Week is the week leading up to the weekend of Easter where we celebrate the incredible redemptive work of God on our behalf, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so super excited about that coming as the week unfolds. And the weekend before Easter, traditionally known as Palm Sunday, uh, is sort of the beginning of a week-long endeavor to prepare ourselves and to focus ourselves uh, on the incredible reality of our redemption and the incredible grace and mercy of God that affects that redemption, right? So, so this is a very important weekend, and, and this weekend uh, is sort of wrapped around a story in Scripture that unfolds um, with Jesus entering Jerusalem uh, in, in, in many ways sequentially uh, about a week ahead of all the events that are going to take place uh, next weekend as far as what we celebrate. And so that's what we're doing here today is entering into the story to prepare ourselves for what's to come and to be a part of these events as they unfold throughout the week. Now, I don't know about uh, you guys, but have you guys ever um, encountered the website uh, WebMD? Anybody here, WebMD? Like, dude, I love that site. Uh, WebMD, you know, you go there and then you put your symptoms in and, and your stuff and then it tells you exactly what's wrong with you before you go to the doctor, right? And you've read the blog somewhere 14 years ago where somebody, uh, because of WebMD actually told the doctor what was wrong with them and the doctor would have had no idea and their life was saved, right? And so now clearly, if you go to the doctor without reading WebMD, you might die, right? Doctors hate this site because, because it's like children playing with stuff and then coming to the office, doc, listen, I know what's wrong with me with the medication I need is this one. If you could just write the prescription, the doctor's like, you know nothing, You've read a little article on a little website. And, and so oftentimes I think you probably sit in the doctor's office with your brilliance, uh, my brilliance coming to the table. Here's what I've read. And the doctor must be thinking, boy, how little you know. How little you know. Now, I get why you think what you think, but... I went, I went to college for four years, then I went to medical school for like 40 years. I've been doing this for a long time. I've seen 7,000 people. Trust me when I tell you, the sequence you think is occurring is not what is actually happening because you don't know all the layers that are around that. In this time in history, in many ways, the people of God at this time, the Jewish people, uh, really were having sort of a WebMD moment, right? They, they had a, a great idea of the sequence of events. They, they knew exactly what was occurring. They made giant assumptions about it. And so they were behaving toward Jesus and expecting from Jesus certain things because of what they knew and what they had seen and what they had read. And listen, just like WebMD, when you read the deal and you come to the doctor with a printout, it all makes Makes sense, doesn't it? You're like, look, I mean, this happened to me, and then this happened to me. And, and yes, there is a certain reality where the doctor understands why you think what you think, but there's just things you don't know that, 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 that change the entire story. 
So let's, let's travel through the story uh, that is occurring that brings us to the events that we celebrate on Palm Sunday, and, and let's take a look at what was occurring uh, from the Jewish perspective, understanding what they had read, what they had understood, and then we will discover in that what Jesus is up to and the beauty of how that sets us up for what we're going through in this next week and what we're preparing ourselves for next weekend. So... Uh, remember that in many ways, um, the, the events in Jerusalem that we are about to encounter are happening because of a, a, a festival, a feast that they celebrate called Passover. So every single year, people travel from all over the known world during Jesus' time to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate Passover. Uh, different historians land at different places, but all of them agree that somewhere between two and four million people would enter Jerusalem during the week of Passover in preparation of that event. Jerusalem was a city of about 100,000 people. So when you start thinking about that, look, Orlando, we get it a bit here, right? Uh, We have uh, over 60 million tourists a year traveling through our neat little city. And, And we love that, don't we? We love that. And you're like, do we? Well, it's good for the economy. Terrible for the roads, right? And, and so, so we know what it's like to have a giant amount of people sequenced through a city in a given year. But just think about this. This was happening in a given week. And you were going from 100,000 people to, to between 2 to 4 million people in your city. So it was a giant, chaotic, massive mess. Not, a, not, not only that, but they were coming to celebrate Passover, which were the events that took place during the time of Moses, where the people of God were oppressed by another nation, and God sent a redeemer, a, a, a Messiah, a rescuer in Moses, uh, to bring about supernatural events that set the people free uh, from their oppressors and gave them life. Okay, so you get that sequence. They're coming to celebrate that reality. We were oppressed for hundreds of years. God sent a redeemer. Through that redeemer did supernatural things to overthrow the, oppressed, uh, the, the, the oppressing nation and we were freed. That's what they're celebrating. During the time of Moses... Um, The people, uh, when Moses was facing his death, God spoke to Moses and said, listen, here's what I'm going to do. Tell the people, Deuteronomy 18.15, that I am going to rise up in the future a prophet like Moses to stand and rescue the people. Okay, So the story of Moses is tied to one that will come that will rescue the people from a great oppression in the future. All right? For the last 500 years, the Jewish people have lived under oppression again. They were under Babylon, then they were under Persia, then they were under Greece, then they were under Rome. Rome has been the worst of all the nations. Rome made Egypt look like a joke. And so the people are doing the math, wouldn't you? We have been oppressed for 500 years. We have not been able to get ourselves out from under this oppression. God said he would send a rescuer uh, uh, in the likes of Moses who will come and rescue us from our oppression. Boom, right there, right? Uh, Remember, Jesus has been walking around for the last three years, preaching and teaching, doing miraculous, supernatural things. He has healed the sick. He has made the blind. He has even raised the dead. Uh, He has taught amazing things, declaring himself to be one of messiahship. Uh, He has said 
And when he re- reads Isaiah's prophecy about the one who will come and set the, the, uh, the, the captives free, remember, he stood up and said, in your presence, this has been fulfilled. Uh, he said things like, before Moses, I am. And he said things like, I am the light of the world at the great festival of lights, declaring himself uh, to be the one that will bring freedom and light. These, these things have been spreading all over the known world. So people are putting two and two together going, Jesus is saying that he is the one. He is doing miraculous supernatural things, making him powerful enough to be the one. He is on his way to Jerusalem, and it happens to be the Passover, which is where things get celebrated about our rescue. Are you putting all this together so far? So there's a giant crowd following Jesus, a giant crowd coming with him. Not to mention in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when King David was uh, reigning, uh, there was a prophecy there that God said to King David, listen, don't worry, through you I'm going to establish a throne that is going to last forever, ruling over my people and bringing them peace. There is going to be one who will rise up and will rule like you but bigger than you. And Jesus had tied himself to these realities. So people are following Jesus. Now, now we enter into this particular week, okay? Uh, the day before Palm Sunday, essentially the, the triumphal entry, the day after there's some events that took place. We're not exactly sure the hourly sequ- uh, 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 timing, but we know they took place in that time and they began with a journey that Jesus was taking up toward Jerusalem. Giant crowd following Jesus. Why? Because they don't want to miss the spectacle in Jerusalem. This is the Passover to be part of because this is where Jesus is going to come in with an army of supernatural angels and wipe out the oppressor, right? So they're coming, and guess what path they choose to take? Jesus takes the path through Jericho. Now, this matters a great deal because Jericho was a hub city during this time. It was the city where the centrality of all the tax collecting took place because it was a gateway on the main trade route. And so this is the gateway into Jerusalem, which was the capital area, of a uh, uh, city of that whole region. And so when kings would come to Jerusalem, dignitaries would travel, guess which city they would always travel through. Jericho, it was the way you went if you were setting yourself up as a dignitary or a king. So Jesus is traveling. He's coming through Jericho. The crowds are with him. We know it was super crowded because actually in Jericho, there was a guy who wanted to see who Jesus was. And it said there were so many people, he could not in any way get to where Jesus was. This also tells us about an attitude that Jesus's followers and the people had about him. In fact, there's an event that takes place place right before he enters Jericho that tells us the attitude the people had toward Jesus. Now let's turn in our Bibles and let's go to the book of Luke. Uh, We're going to be in the the book of Luke and we're going to take a look at these events. Whoops, I'm missing Luke here. Here we go. I just want you to be uh, in the book of Luke where we're going to be traveling. We're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 18. So go to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to be traveling between verse 31 and all the way through uh, the end of Luke chapter 19. So just be there in your Bible. We'll touch base. So uh, Jesus is heading toward Jericho. And on his way toward Jericho, just before he enters the city, we encounter uh, this little moment in chapter, uh, chapter 
um, 17, verse 38. And, and he, he's walking along, the crowds are around him, and there's this guy on the side of the road, and this guy is blind, and he shouts out, what's going on? Because this giant crowd is coming by, right? And somebody says to him, dude, it's Jesus. We're heading to Jericho, and then we're off to Jerusalem. And you know what this guy does? He's blind. So he's heard the stories about Jesus' supernatural power. He knows what Jesus can do. So he starts shouting, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. And you know what the people do to the beggar? Of course they do. They take him to Jesus immediately. No, no, they don't. They tell him, shush, what are you doing? One guy tells the other guy, you should never have told him it was Jesus, you idiot. I'm like, I'm sorry, he asked, I don't know. And now he's shouting, Jesus, mercy. And all the people are like, I hope he doesn't hear him, I hope he doesn't hear him. It's okay, Jesus, just keep moving on. Why? Because where are they on their way to? Jerusalem, to do what? To conquer Rome. And Jesus is who? The king who's going. Who does not, uh, who's not supposed to d- distract and bother Jesus? The dude on the side of the road, right? We don't have time for this. We don't have time for this. Let's just, uh, just keep going. And, and th- he creates such a commotion that Jesus says, what's going on? And someone goes, oh, don't worry about it. It's just some blind guy on the side of the road. And Jesus goes, bring him to me. And they bring the, the guy to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, uh, what can I do for you? Which is the strangest thing on planet earth, isn't it? Um, I'm blind. <laughs> Mercy, mercy, please uh, give me a dollar. No, I'm blind and you're Jesus. What do you think you can do for me? That's what I would have said, but that wouldn't have gone well, right? And so the guy comes to him and Jesus makes this point to stop everything and go, everybody, everybody pay attention. What is it you need? And the guy goes, would you have mercy on me? I just want to see. And Jesus goes like this. Sure, you can see. Your trust and belief in who I am has set you free and made you see. And it says the guy could see immediately and he rejoiced and followed Jesus up through Jericho into Jerusalem. The blind sees, how awesome is that? On the way to Jericho. In Jericho, they get there and another incident takes place that is super distracting to the mission, right? They get in there and there's this guy, Zacchaeus, and he is the chief tax collector, which is the only man with the beauty of that title in all of scripture because the tax collectors were hated because they were the most lost of the lost. They had sold their soul to the devil, essentially. They had become Roman instead of Jewish. And so the chief tax collector was the most lost person of lost people. And so he's in a tree because he's short and he can't see and there's a lot of people and so he's watching and Jesus is walking and they're they're just getting through Jericho. We're on our way to Jerusalem. This is not where we stop. And he stops at the tree and he goes, hey, Zach, listen, I am on my way to your house to grab some tea. That's in a song, not in the Bible. Uh, The the house is, but the tea isn't. Um, And and I'm not sure why you're in the tree. Uh, You should probably... uh, Head for the house. I'm, I'm, I'm in, literally, I'm on my way there now. And when I knock, you know, you need to be. And Zacchaeus is my, my house. And he's like, yep, your house. And the whispers are, what is he doing? Does he even know who this guy is? I mean, my goodness, this guy is the lost, lostest of the lostest. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you don't, you don't even hang with this guy. You don't touch him. The reason Zacchaeus thought he could never see Jesus is because he knew the people would never let him get close to Jesus because the unclean can't touch the clean. And yet Jesus goes to his house. And can you imagine sort of the... Oh my goodness, we got to get to Jerusalem. What is going on here? Jesus is hanging with Zacchaeus in the house, having a conversation. The attitude was, let's get to Jerusalem. And Jesus is chilling with Zacchaeus. And after he talks to Zacchaeus, the Bible says Zacchaeus got up and he said, I'm going to sell all my possessions and give everything I've stolen from everyone back and more. 
we see a transformation of this man. The blind can see the lost is found. Isn't that awesome? And then Jesus gets up and heads off to Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem from Jericho, they're, they're going and Jesus uh, shares a story, a parable. It's right there in Luke, the, the, next, the next thing in the sequence. And he's, he's walking along to Jerusalem. Remember, everybody's like, oh my gosh, the king is coming. The white horse is about to happen. We're riding in angel armies. Boom, Rome is done. And, and they're going and Jesus goes, hey, I'm going to share a story with you. So there was this, once there was this, this ruler and, and he had a bunch of servants. And um, the ruler uh, was going to go away for a while. Uh, to go and acquire a greater territory. And right before he left, he called his servants together and he said to the 10 servants, listen, I'm going to go away for a while. I'm going to give each of you um, some money, uh, a minus, and that is the equivalent of about three months of wages. So if you take the average income of the central Florida region, you take three months of that. That's the amount of money that was given to these guys. So it was not pocket change. You understand? This was, this was money you could do business with. This was money you could start things with. This was money you could invest well. It was a lot to play with, right? So he gives money to these 10 servants and he goes, listen, I'm going to go away for a while to go and establish some stuff with a, to expand our territory. And when I come back, uh, you know, you do business on my behalf while I'm gone. And, and then the, the, the ruler goes away and then he comes back and he calls the servants together. Uh, as soon as he leaves, a portion of the servants are like, we don't want him to be our ruler. He's out of town. Let's send a delegation to him and say, stay away. So a little delegation goes to the ruler, like, we're not going to have you be our king anymore. You just go do it somewhere else. And then some of the servants, they jump in and they start investing. And when the ruler comes back, uh, the first servant says, I, man, you, 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 I, I took the money and, and it has grown tremendously. And then the second servant goes, I took the money and it's, it's grown by half. And then the third servant says, um, I, 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 I just buried the money and, and here it is. Your money's back, right? So sounds familiar, doesn't it? But, but in this particular parable, Jesus changes a number of the details from the other talent piece because he's trying to show something unique. So this is super crazy, right? So Herod, who was currently the king of the Jewish people, he shouldn't have been the king of the Jewish people because he was an Edomite. And the Edomites, uh, their heritage wasn't from Jacob, it was from Esau, which means that they weren't truly Jewish, part of the 12 tribes. And so the king, Herod, had gotten his kingship through political connection, and he was the king of the Jews because essentially Jacob and Esau, he's from Esau, I mean, it's kind of Jewish, but not really. And so he's the king, and the Jewish people hated the fact that he was their king. And he was a hard king. Uh, he, he used his kingship, and he was against the people, not for the people. Then there was actually an incident where Herod went away for a period of time during the time that Anthony and Cleopatra were, uh, were kind of getting together and they were trying to uh, uh, step in and take over where um, Caesar Augustus was and there was that giant craziness that went on. Herod, during that time in history, actually went and met with those guys somewhere else to keep his territory and expand it. And while he was gone, the Jewish people were in, 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 in uh, uh, Jerusalem in that region and their king was gone and it was all awesome. The king is out of town. Whoo! Thank goodness, right? And then he came back using his political power to expand his territory. And, and, and Herod was a hard and, and difficult man. So Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, is telling the story that everyone's like, this sounds like what happened with Herod. Except that what Jesus does is this. He says, when the ruler went away, a bunch of people didn't even want him to be their ruler. Check that box. Those who had money worked in business. Now, you would think it's about the money, wouldn't you? Whether you produce more money. But here's the cool part. 
If you were a servant of the king and while the king was gone, you continued to do business in the city, do you know what that told the city about you? It said you were for the king. You were with the king. If you didn't do business in the city, it said, when he's out, I'm out. I am a servant. I'm kind of stuck with that, but I actually hate him. And so what you would do is you would take a chance when the king went out by either working or not working. Because if you worked and the king came back and he expanded his territory, then you got the in, right? And if you didn't work and, and, and he got the territory, then oh well for you. But vice versa, if the king fell while he was gone and you in the city had shown yourself not to be loyal to that king, then you got in with the city. So you rolled your dice. So these servants, it wasn't about Jesus going, well done with the money, it was about Jesus saying, you were faithful to the king, or you were not faithful to the king. Because the third servant, when he comes and he goes, look, uh, I, I have your money back, he says, well, why didn't you do anything with it? It's in the parable. And the guy says, look, I know you to be a hard man, and I knew that if I messed with this money and I lost the money, that you would be all mad, and then I'd be in trouble, so I just put it away to keep it safe. And Jesus says something to him that reveals that his true motive was not about keeping the money safe because the king was hard. It was about not being loyal to the king. So he says this to him, if that's indeed how you felt, if you actually thought I was a hard man, you would have taken the money and invested it in a bank where it is perfectly safe and it would have made interest. And I would have been fine with that because by investing it in the bank, you would have said, I'm what? For the master right? I'm working for the master. I belong to the master. So Jesus is talking here about whether you are ashamed of the master or not ashamed of the master, not about how much you produce. And he says to them, listen, you hid the money because you were ashamed of me. And you were ashamed of me because you thought I was a hard man. You don't even know me. See, he's contrasting himself to Herod and he is calling his people into faithfulness in terms of their relationship with him, not production in terms of what talents they have. You with me? Beautiful parable, but sort of oddly placed on his way to Jerusalem. But you kind of go, I get it. He's going to rise up now and we've got to stay loyal to him because then we're on the inn. That's how you would be thinking. So you're on the way to Jerusalem. They, they get just outside Jerusalem and Jesus goes, okay, boys, listen. I want you to head into the city. There's going to be a cult, a donkey. It's tied up in the city at this particular location. No one's ever ridden it. It's been set aside for sacrifice because that's why people wouldn't ride it because it was a donkey without blemish and so it was going to be utilized for purposes of sacrifice or for purposes of honoring somebody that is holy. And so he goes, go find the donkey, untie it and bring it to me. If anybody says to you, why are you untying the donkey? Why are you stealing my donkey essentially? Uh, you just say to them, the Lord has need of it. So can you imagine that, that conversation on the way to the donkey? All right, Jesus said, steal a donkey. And if somebody says, why are you stealing my donkey? We say, the Lord needs it. This is not going to go well. So they go and they get to the donkey exactly where Jesus said it was. They untie the donkey and somebody comes out uh -huh, and goes, uh, what are you doing? And they go, 
the Lord needs it. And the guy goes, apparently, we don't know, but the guy apparently goes, sure, no problem. Either that or they fought the guy and we did, they didn't write it down. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure he said it was fine. And so he walks over the donkey. Now, we don't know whether that was a miraculous moment where Jesus just kind of said the guy's going to be cool with it or whether in that moment that is another display of what people in Jerusalem were already feeling about Jesus. Can you imagine? You have this donkey set aside for someone holy. These guys come. We say, we're the disciples of Jesus. We need the donkey. And he's going to ride in on it. And the guy goes, my donkey? Yes, the king, the Messiah, the one. He's here. This is the big weekend. He's coming. And he wants to use your donkey. He told us it'd be here. Really, my donkey? Take it. That's awesome. We don't know. It was one of those scenarios. But bottom line is, the sovereign, beautiful authorship of the story being by Jesus for us was declared in that moment, wasn't it? None of this is by accident, boys and girls. Go get the donkey. Bring it to me. Now, the donkey's odd, right? Because if you're going to ride into a city, you've come up the road from Jericho, you've declared yourself king, you're coming to conquer, you don't ride, uh, ride into the town with a donkey. You ride into town with a white horse. In that time, if you rode in on a big horse, that declared war. If you rode in on a donkey, that declared peace. So at first you're like, why the donkey, not the horse? If you were, if you were Jewish, you'd be thinking that. Because Jesus is coming to do what? Conquer. Declare war against the world. Declare war against Rome. Declare war against the institution. To de declare war against Herod. And he's just so much as said it. The parable. I'm not like Herod. I'm taking him down. Right? That's not actually what the parable is about. Jesus is up to something, but that's what it would sound like. So he gets on the donkey, and the only thing that people could have tied to in that is, okay, why a donkey, not a horse? Ah, got it, got it. Remember, WebMD, I'm going through the sequence. Boom, I found it. Here it is, right? Um, Solomon rode into town on a donkey. Do you know why? Because when King David was dying, Solomon was supposed to be king, and one of his other sons was navigating to take the kingship from him right after David died. But Bathsheba went to David and said to David, one of your other sons is scheming to take the deal. And David said, before I die, get a white Don I mean, the white donkey, get a donkey, uh, get Solomon on the donkey, have him ride into town declaring him king before I die. And so they did. They went and got Solomon. They, he rode into town on a donkey and they declared him king. But he chose a donkey, not a horse, because he wanted Solomon to be a king of peace, not a king of war, which Solomon ended up being. He ended up being a great king of peace. And so if you're looking at all of this, you're going, I get it. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to declare to his people, I am here to bring you peace. But don't worry, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to ride into Rome's house. I'm going to ride into Herod's house. I'm going to ride into Pilate's house. And I'm going to take them down with an army of angels on a donkey. Mm. It's going to be good. So Jesus rides in on the donkey into Jerusalem, and what do the people do? Welcome to Palm Sunday. Here we are, right? Took a little ways, but here we are, okay? Now, do you, do you catch the sequence? The king comes up the road into Jericho. He's declaring himself king. He's telling the parable, contrasting himself to Herod. He's getting on a donkey to ride in like Solomon. And oh yes, uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there was a prophecy about the Messiah riding in on a colt or a donkey. So he's fulfilling a prophecy here. And so everybody's putting the pieces together. We have a diagnosis. This is going to be awesome. Jesus comes to take over Rome. Yeah. And he comes in and as he rides in, the thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially even millions of people that have been arriving, that have been following him, 
they start declaring him king. And this is where Palm Sunday comes from because they take their coats and they take palm branches and they lay the palm branches down uh, on his way. And it was a sign of declaring the ruler, the king. And they shout, uh, oh my gosh, here he comes. And they use this word, Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has come. Hosanna literally means God save us now. God save us now. It was a declaration of everything they knew to be true. God was coming to save them now, riding in on a donkey. And there is Palm Sunday. The palms go down and they come in. And at a certain point, just play this out for a second, right? You are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This is where you live. You have to deal with Herod every day of your stinking life. You have to deal with Pilate all the time. Those guys are in your office every day going, you got to get control of these Jewish zealots. If they keep doing what they're doing. By the way, zealots were the people that were like the little Jewish terrorists trying to overthrow Rome all the time. And they were like a bug in Rome's ear. And so Pilate, uh, he is ticked off because Jerusalem is a, is a hodgepodge of insanity. And whenever the guys that are Pilate's bosses come to Jerusalem, they're like, you need to get control of your region. Then Pilate goes to the high priest and goes, you need to get control of your people. And Herod goes, if you keep doing this, then Pilate's going to be mad at me and I'm not going to be king and you're going to be in trouble. So all that's going on every day for these guys. So imagine what it must have felt like for those guys as these people come in and hundreds of thousands of people start doing this. Hosanna, King of Kings, save us now. Oh, son of David. I mean, Herod's probably literally in his office going, King of who? King, oh my, you gotta be kidding me. Did we not get this Jesus guy taken care of? And, and Pilate's gonna go ballistic. So you know what the, the priests do? They start telling the people, quiet, quiet, stop. What are you doing? Are you, are you people out of your mind? It's already tense. You're going you're gonna to blow the whole thing up. And nobody's listening. Hosanna, Hosanna. So he, they go straight to Jesus. And they're like, tell him you're a smart man. You taught some good stuff. You get it. I mean, don't you get the political environment we're in? Don't you get it? You need to tell them to stop declaring you as king because this is not going to go well for any of us. And first and foremost, you, you're going to die. You know what Jesus says to them? It's right there. You can read it. He says, I hear you. And I, I mean, I do. Super sad. But um, <laughs> here's the problem. If I tell them to stop, then you see the rocks everywhere? They'll start shouting it. They'll start shouting who I am. Now, you know exactly why Jesus said that, right? Of course you do. It's out of Daniel 9. I mean, you knew that. The second I said it, you were like, Daniel 9, got it. <laughs> no, not, not so much. Um, so why is Jesus saying this? It's an odd thing to say. And we usually equate it to, you know, if we don't worship, the rocks will worship. But actually, it has far deeper meaning than that. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, in a prophecy, declares that the Messiah will enter into Jerusalem and set up the process of redemption uh, exactly 490 years after the declaration that Jerusalem can be rebuilt. You got that so far? So guess what? There was a declaration that Jerusalem could be rebuilt. And guess how many years ago that was from this day? 490 years ago. So the people have done the math. They've done the math and they've realized that this day was set almost five, I mean, five plus hundred years before this, this day was set in motion. And here's what Jesus is saying. You don't understand, guys. What's happening here on this day is going to happen no matter what. It is said, it is done, it is finished. Then if the people don't say it, then the rocks will. 
Because one way or the other, I cannot and will not stop what is in motion now because this has been set in motion hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And what Jesus actually knew wasn't hundreds of years ago, was it? It was before the foundation of the world. This day was going to be this day and it was set for Jesus to come and redeem his people. Isn't that beautiful? Please, the implications are massive. I understand, but God is rolling in. And it doesn't matter what the implications are. Mm. So, if you're Jewish and you hear all that, you're excited now. Where is Jesus going next? What is he going to do next? He just rode into Jerusalem. People have been shouting, King, you don't wait a week on that one, right? I know exactly where he's going, don't you? He's heading first, probably, I'd say, to Herod's house. Because he needs to do some cleansing in Herod's house, doesn't he? He needs to clean out Herod's house. Get in there, get the Edomite out set himself up as king of the Jews. Mm, that's coming. Then from Herod's house, he's going to roll on to Pilate. Pilate's coming next. <laughs> you're going to walk into Pilate's house, and when Pilate goes, stand back with these little soldiers, seven angels are going to appear like 7,000 feet tall with giant swords and go, what was that? <laughs> and then he's going to cleanse out Pilate's house. Then that's going to get up the ranks to Rome, and they're going to send an army to Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to go, bring it on. Have you seen my angel army? Dude, you guys, you're human, you're dead. So Jesus is about to do some cleansing. That's what's going to happen next. You know what happens next? The first thing that happens is Jesus weeps. That's that little passage where it says, Jesus saw Jerusalem and he wept over the place. Do you know why he wept over Jerusalem? It actually tells us in the scripture. He wept over Jerusalem because he said, if only they knew what was actually going on. He says, if only they knew the way of peace. You see, this is the first clue we get in the sequence that maybe our WebMD conclusion is not what we think it is, right? We're kind of going, got it, Jer Jericho, king. I mean, the blind guy and Zacchaeus, it shows Jesus as a kind king. That's super nice. And then off to Jerusalem and the Herod comparison and rolling into town and the, and the great peace he's going to bring to all of us. He's, he's doing it right now. And here Jesus weeps and he says, you guys are seeing a sequence of events and I get why you think it is what it is, but you don't know what's actually going on. What you think is so small in comparison to what I'm up to. And then right after that, we see the, the first moment that occurs that is completely outside of the box. He doesn't walk into Herod's house to do some cleansing. He doesn't walk into Pilate's house to do some cleansing. Do you know which house he walks into? His house. That's where the cleansing of the temple takes place. It's right there. Isn't that funny? Go, go take care of the world. Go take care of the pagans. Go take care of Herod. Where does he go? He goes to his temple. He walks in, and this is the moment where he gets all mad about the den of thieves. Remember that story? Throwing tables everywhere. Like, what are you doing? Are you people crazy? This is my father's house. This is a house of prayer. It's a house of peace. It's not a house of this insanity. Get out. And he gets into the temple, and he cleanses the temple, and he gets his house in order. His people in order. He didn't come to cleanse Herod's house or Pilate's house. He came to cleanse our house. And then the Bible literally says, after he cleansed the temple, he spent the next week teaching in the temple, preparing his people. Isn't that beautiful? And in that moment, if you go backwards, watch now. Watch now. You go backwards. 
and you take WebMD off and you sit with the real doctor and you go, okay, I think I'm seeing this. And the doctor goes, I hear you, but watch in the details what you're missing. When Jesus is walking toward Jericho and he's coming through Jericho and he's heading up to Jerusalem, he is not preparing to overthrow the world on behalf of the Jewish people. He's preparing to overthrow sin and death on behalf of the human race. He's coming to make the blind see. He's coming to get the lost found. He's coming to prepare his people to be redemptive on his behalf, doing his work after he's cleansed them so that they might be participants in his redemptive story. He's calling them to faithfulness so that they might live their lives with the right king doing the right stuff, not wasting their lives, messing around under the wrong idols and the wrong rulers, wasting their lives on the wrong stuff. Now the sequence makes sense. He heals a blind guy randomly on the road, but it's not random at all. He draws attention to it. I have not come to overthrow Rome. I've come to make the blind see. He walks into a town where the most lost of the lost man in Jerusalem lives and he calls him to his house and he redeems him right there so that his life changes and he goes, I've come to find the lostest of the lostest and change their trajectory. He walks into Jerusalem and says, as I leave this place to go prepare a place for you, stay faithful to me. I don't care what you produce, that's irrelevant. What I care is that you work on my behalf to demonstrate that you belong to me because you do belong to me and I do belong to you. Do not be ashamed of me because I'm not like Herod. I am a good king. And then he walks into Jerusalem on a donkey saying, I didn't come to make war with Rome. I didn't come to make war with Herod. I came to redeem Rome and redeem Herod because I'm going to redeem you. I didn't come for the Jewish people. I came for the human race. And I come in peace because the way of redemption is not war. The way of redemption is peace because the way to overthrow sin and death is not by warring each other. The way to overthrow sin and death is by redeeming one another through love and through grace and through truth which is what Jesus carries in him every day. And then he walks into the city and he cleanses his people first. I will redeem you first so that you might be clean and then I will prepare you by the power of the Spirit of God to go and be redeemers on my behalf. And you know what Jesus will do next? He will submit himself to Herod. What? Then he will submit himself to Pilate. What? Then he will submit himself to Rome. What? And he will die. What? So that he might rise from the dead and overthrow sin and death by being our redeemer. The events that took place as he entered Jerusalem, Jesus was up to something. He was showing us the way of redemption that he would affect for us first so that we might be effectors of it for others. In Revelation chapter 7, there is another scene that takes place. It's in our future. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That never happens if Jesus overthrows Rome and Herod and redeems the Jewish people. Then there's no nations, no tribes, no tongues. When he redeemed, he redeemed for all. 
and they all stand together now, redeemed in heaven. Watch this, watch this. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, in the end, everyone knows who Jesus was. Not the king who came to conquer Rome, but the Lamb who came to conquer death. And we will worship him together because he did not come to conquer us. He came to conquer our problem. In Philippians chapter 2, it will say, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who instead of rising himself up and setting himself up as ruler and conqueror, gave himself in humility even unto death so that we might have life. And then he says to us, his people, as you remember the events of Palm Sunday and the events leading up to Easter that demonstrate the way of redemption, may you walk out and be cleansed as recipients of the gospel, empowered by the Spirit of God and prepared to go out and in grace and truth to love the world so that they might be redeemed, not to war against the world, so that you might be the opposite of what I came to do. When God's house is a house of prayer and a house of peace, and God's people are a people of love and a people of grace and a people of mercy and a people of truth, and when we trust Him instead of ourselves and we war against sin and death, the unredeemed places of the world, even if it costs us a crucifixion, then we bring the peace of God to the world. And the kingdom of God expands. This week, may you begin the journey of remembering who you are in Christ. Finding gratitude that he cleansed you first. So that he might prepare you to be a carrier of redemption. Not a carrier of judgment and war. A carrier of truth and grace. To bring to the world so that they might know life. And may we war against the unredeemed places in this world, having our attitude the same as that of Christ Jesus, who came and humbled himself for us. May we humble ourselves for him and be faithful servants, unashamed of who we serve and how we serve him. Let's pray. God, you are good, oh so good. Not like Herod, not like all the others, what a surprise it must have been and what a beauty it is now that you came into Jerusalem not to war against Rome or war against Herod, but to redeem Rome and Herod and your people and the human race, giving us all the beautiful picture of your journey of redemption, making the blind see, seeing the lost found, riding in with peace, not war, humbling yourself, cleansing your people, preparing them, and then together going to war against sin and death by humbling yourself to the very people who warred against you and then rising from the dead to demonstrate the power you truly held. Not a supernatural ar army of angels, though you had them too, to overthrow a government, but the divinity and power and wonder of sovereign rulership to overthrow our haunting problems, sin and death. 
may we live like you, not at war against the world around us, but for them, stepping into their unredeemed spaces and being servants to them, to serve them into redemption. May our kindness to them lead them to repentance as your kindness to us led us to repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.